Hello and welcome to the Johnny Fallon podcast referendum series where we are taking another look at some of the big referendums that have happened in Ireland and how these have shaped and made our society and in this episode we are going back to take a look at the first Nice referendum uh, on one of the major treaties of the European Union and what it meant for Ireland and indeed for all of the EU uh, in what was seen as a surprise result. So take some time, uh, whether you're out for a walk, having a cup of tea, watching TV, uh, take a break and you can listen and transport yourself back to a very different Ireland in in many ways despite the the recency of this episode because we are going back to 2001 um, for this referendum. So Take a little trip back in time and see just why did the Irish have such an issue with the first Nice referendum. Now, you are all very welcome to this episode, and my apologies. Yes, I know some of you have mentioned me. This has taken a little bit of a gap uh, over the summer months uh, before coming to this particular referendum, and I know many of you were interested uh, in this one in particular because it does have a certain shift, perhaps, in Irish society and a certain historical um impact that is still very much alive uh, today and a debate that is still very much ongoing today. So I'm glad to be able to bring you this episode at last and we will be continuing on with the future of the referendum series as we go through some of the other referendums uh, throughout the 2000s and bring it up to date. Now, um, just to lay a little bit of groundwork, I suppose, on this one, because We've been covering all of these referendums, uh, particularly, though, the European ones. Um, and if you've been listening back over the last uh, number of uh, podcasts, you're going to see that that pattern, that pattern mirrors, in the same way as our election series did, the changing nature of Irish society from the 1970s through the 80s, through the 90s, into the 2000s all mirrored all the time in how Ireland is evolving, how its views, particularly um, its views on some social issues in this referendum series, we've seen quite starkly uh, changing over time. Um, now, in terms of Europe, uh, at this point, we're, we're talking about the, the Nice referendum happening in 2001. Um, there had been a consistency about... Um, referendum results at this point. Uh, and we're going to touch on that. We're going to look at why, why were they consistent and, and what did that mean. But it seemed to perhaps political establishment that uh, this Nice Treaty referendum, uh, the first one, uh, and uh, it came out of nowhere and, and then the result came out of nowhere. And, and look, let's be honest here, when we're covering this we all know there were two Nice Treaty referendums. So we've Nice 1 and we've Nice 2. We will be covering Nice 2 and in that one we're going to cover the debate around should you rerun a referendum, why referendums rerun, is it right, is it wrong, because, you know, look, at that's still the biggest debate, but that's going to come on our second uh, uh, referendum uh, podcast when we're going to look at Nice 2 because that part of the debate comes in there. This is Nice 1 so it's it's where we are going and we know that this is the rejection of the Nice Treaty. So we already know the result, we already know the outcome here. Um, but 
it does seem to catch the political establishment very much off guard when it happens. Uh, but there were lots of signs there. There were lots of uh, indicators that this was going to happen. Um, and consistently, and you look back with the benefit of hindsight and all of that good stuff, you can see where this result was coming from. You can also see why perhaps it was seen as something as, you know, a, a little bit of a mistake, a little bit of an error, something we got wrong and we'll fix. But there is something deeper there and there was something deeper there. And it's not just in Ireland, it was an EU-wide thing. But this allows us now to start putting that into context because uh, in our previous podcast, I, I, I would think that one of the things we've seen on European issues is almost a sense of uh, it's just chugging along. It's fine. You know, there, there are issues out there. Uh, the Danes had issues in 1992, but lots of countries like Ireland, they're fine with this. Um, and therefore, it's just chugging along. It doesn't need to be monitored in any great way. You know, Europe's fine. Europe does good stuff. And, and countries like Ireland that are getting money from Europe are always going to be fine about these things. Uh, and that, in a way, um, as I say, those indicators might have been there, but there wasn't that sense. There wasn't a sense at this point that there was a danger of something like this happening, of, of Ireland or Irish voters turning against uh, Europe in any way. And that created a really big problem for political parties, the establishment for the EU at this time. And that's why this is a referendum that's particularly worthy of examination. Now, um, in doing that, I want to do a couple of things in the podcast. So just to, to set it up here, we need to first of all take this in a European context. And I want to go back a little bit and just take a, a quick overview of how Europe is, is, is coming to this point. Uh, and that's that's a little bit of uh, a historical piece uh, that that is important, though, because I think we, we, we have to take that long view of history to just get a sense of, of what Europe has has become and why it's become uh, this this institution. Um, uh, and I know in previous um, podcasts when we've looked at the European, we've looked at it only from the Irish perspective, but it's important to kind of see why Europe uh, is beginning to change a little bit too and why it feels it needs that change. So we're going to look at that. Then we want to look at Ireland and how Ireland has changed because 2001 marks this very dramatic point in it. This is what we call the Celtic Tiger era. It's a year before a general election um, where there's going to be a resounding result for the the. the existing government uh, vindicating all of what they've said and policies they've implemented because everyone's very happy and there's lots of money around and all of those kind of things also play a part in what's beginning to shift in the mindset coming up to uh, this Nice referendum and we need to examine that shift in Ireland that, that socio-economic shift that also happens in there and then finally to look at it from the perspective of Europe itself. Um, what happens here? Are, is this result just um, uh, something that just flew under the radar, people didn't pay attention and suddenly we got a wrong result as far as the leadership were concerned? Or was it a real sense of growing discontent? And, and how did those who supported the no side manage to handle this so well, manage to get it over the line so easily, and of course have impact in later referendums as well, showing us that there is a pattern there um, and there is some 
fertile ground for these opinions uh, on Europe. So we're going to look at it in all of that uh, in this in this uh, podcast. Then we're going to um, take a quick look at the result and we will finish up at that point. And then it is in our next Nice 2 podcast that we will look at the debate around rerunning a, a referendum and asking the people again and when you can do that and maybe when you can't do that and the problems or benefits of uh, doing that kind of thing. So uh, hopefully you will get a sense from this of just where Ireland was at in 2001. But I think, first of all, let's get a sense of maybe why Europe has come to the point of wanting the Nice Treaty. So let's take a quick look at where Europe was uh, at this point. Now, when I say you take a look at these things, if you take the broadest sweep of uh, understanding Europe, it's, it's understanding it from... When you talk about EU treaties and you talk about the ambition of the European Union, you've got to go far beyond the actual uh, formation of the European Union. You've got to go far beyond anything that the, the European Union is currently doing because you've got to understand the mindset of leaders. Um, because the European Union is driven by, it's a political institution, it's driven by political ideals. And it's one of the problems when understanding EU that always fascinates me because when you watch debates and you watch debates about things like the euro uh, during the financial crisis and you have many economists and, and financial people saying at one point oh the euro can't survive this or the euro doesn't make sense in various ways and uh, it's going to be pulled down uh, but of course it wasn't and, and it did survive it. Uh, and you wonder how do people who are so financially adept and everything look at this and go, but sure, look, let me point out to you all the flaws in this uh, euro that suddenly, you know, it can't be supported and it's going to crash. And yet it doesn't. Um, why is it that when, you know, economic crisis hit, it's, it's a very slow moving institution, but the EU manages to overcome many of these things and these setbacks, um, even though it would seem on paper that's not likely to happen. And of course, one of the reasons for that is that this you've got to understand it as a political institution rather than an economic institution, although it has lots of economics, rather than an institution based around um, you know, just societal or, or socio impacts, socioeconomic impacts. It is all about the politics. It is all about the leadership. And leaders of countries, whether they are Germany, France, Britain while it was in the EU. Um, all of those big countries, Italy, Spain, they definitely have a sense of their place in European history. Um, you don't rise to be a leader of, of any of those countries without having a particular sense of the line of leaders you're coming from and the line of history through that. Now in Ireland, we tend maybe sometimes to scoff a little bit at that because we tend to be a bit more humble about these things and Ireland has been on the periphery of Europe. Maybe we weren't embedded in all that was going on in Europe, although always playing a part in it no matter what. But we don't tend to think of ourselves in the same way as, you know, we're, we're shaping the world. We've never had empires and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, very much part of this and part of that, that arc of history. And therefore, when you talk about the EU, you're talking about leaders coming together to solve problems as they see as visionary. Um, so sometimes the figures and the numbers and all the things that are there that would not, you know, cause you to say, well, this won't work or that won't work. 
They're overcome by the sheer desire of a political will to make this happen. Whatever it takes, whatever is involved, we can do this as a, as a union. We want it to succeed. So it's not a case of does it make sense or not all the time on the ground. It's the desire to make it succeed. Um, the desire of that history. And of course, there's very good reasons for that. <clears throat> And that's why I want to briefly touch because I want to I want to get us to a sense of why Nice happens because Nice essentially is all about enlargement. The European Union. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, um, you know, you you were talking about the member states of the EU, and you're talking about you know twelve member states, um, you know, of the EU. Of course, it had started out at six, and it had gradually taken very slowly grown uh, with the, the accession of countries like Ireland and, and, and the UK in 73. You know, then you get uh, Greece coming into uh, the EU, you get Spain. Once they become democracies, they're eligible to join and they do want to join. But it remains at that. And then it moves slightly to 15 members. And, and it's taken a long time to grow to that 15 members. It's then looking at a very big enlargement suddenly so eu is going to be jumping and, and overthink that it's currently standing at 27 member states now uh, and a large part of that is because of eastern europe and what happened there and that's understanding that is understanding why they came up with what they had to do in uh, the nice treaty um and, and, and subsequent treaty treaties why did they bother because you know you could have said and and many people would have said at the time uh it was working you know don't mess around with something that's working you have a nice little union and and you will hear this uh, indeed currently in brexit and in discussions like that <clears throat> where you have this uh, rose-tinted glasses view looking back on the EU or as people like to say the EEC as it was before 92 and they will say to you it was great. It was working. It was a nice little free trade agreement. And that's really all it was. We just had, you know, no barriers to trade and everything else. But it's become this political union. It's become this much bigger thing than, you know, just having free trade. And therefore, it's a bad thing. Uh, so why did that happen? And and what was, why is there, in my view, a continual uh, momentum towards something like that? Well, it's kind of all buried up in where these leaders come from and what they see themselves as. So you've got to remember, um, if you go back, like Europe existed um, for thousands of years. I feel like, you know, Europe had much things in, in the continent. Europe had many things that bound it together. Uh, so it had things like the Roman Empire, you know, gathering it together, uh, Similar experiences, you can go around Europe today and you'll find in most countries, exceptions like Ireland and some of the further uh, Eastern European countries. But other than that, you'll find Roman ruins and you find Roman roads and you find that kind of sense. So for a few centuries, there's that pulling them together. Then you have, uh, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, you're going to have church and church pulling people together and people recognising no matter where you are in Europe, you're connected by this faith, particularly the Catholic Church. And then you come into that time when, you know, we've all learned about it in history, Renaissance, Reformation and all new ideas coming into it. And then the church goes into this uh, Catholics, Protestants, that split. 
And it splits Europe uh, a little bit in, in terms of these things that draw together. But one thing we know is that without that kind of unifying force within it, without those, un- Europe is inclined to always break up and start fighting with each other. And after the Reformation, you get religious wars, you get all of that kind of thing. Um, and Europe is inclined towards that all through its history because you know look at it's been a wealthy continent um it's been quite an advanced continent it's been lucky that way um other parts of the world have had peaks and troughs of success but europe has had this nice arc where it too has had peaks and troughs but it's hitting things at the right time at the right technological time when it can just be lucky enough to take advantage of where it is on the world stage that's not good news for the rest of the world by the way um because as europe is doing that as we know that's going to bring a terrible lot of of a disaster to many parts of of the planet but europe as it grows uh, gets into this stage where it's it's changing and and empires are being built or are being sought to be built, but it hasn't quite got there and doesn't get there really until we're talking into, you know, the time of the French Revolution. That's when we really start to see Europe kick off, um, and that's that's problematic for us when we're assessing Europe because number one, you're about to see the the, the dawn of the British Empire truly, um, and its success, and you're going to see a race among other countries like France, Germany. Spain, all seeking to have empires across the world, seeking um, lands where they can expand. <clears throat> and as I say, not a good thing, but they're getting competitive in Europe with each other. And of course, that competition leads to wars. Now, <clears throat> at around the time of the French Revolution, you get this wonderful sense across Europe that the uh, French have done something crazy. <laughs> that they have gone with this revolution, they're kicking out the royal families, they're uh, espousing this revolutionary tenets that say, you know, look, everybody can have a vote. and every... Now, it doesn't always work out as simply as the French revolutionaries want, so they go through an awful mess in France and reigns of terror, all that kind of thing. But <clears throat> it kicks off something very special uh, because you do get people looking to rethink their countries, their societies, everything else. And then when it moves into things like the Napoleonic era, you know, you get that that expansion of France under Napoleon. Um, and all of that means that these countries are really, you know, they're, they're competing with each other and that is turning over into actual outright war. <clears throat> and the Napoleonic era is a really traumatic time. Um, efforts at peace at that time don't really work because they're still battling over political systems. Britain's never going to accept Napoleon, even if Napoleon goes with and says, well, listen, I will stop here and we will have peace, and he gets all these victories. He's never going to be accepted because the royal families will never accept him. They'll never accept not having kings on the throne in France because this is destabilising Europe, this dangerous view even though napoleon's an emperor himself but he's not a royal blood and he's not so even though he's he's rolled back some of the revolutionary stuff he's still in some ways in this republican kind of mold uh in some ways only but all of that means europe is still in this state of flux but you've got to go back to around that time to understand the trauma of what europe experiences because this is very much coming into that modern era when you're talking about the, the turn of the, the 19th century and you're coming to about 1815. You're looking at these countries. They go through, they lose millions of young men to war. 
millions. They absolutely depopulate Europe through war alone. Um, it's, it's horrific from Russia right across uh, to Spain, right across that span into Britain. The amount of, of wars, the amount of continual fighting, the uh, amount of lives lost is quite shocking. And you've disease, you've pestilence, you've all that kind of thing hitting uh, Europe over those years. And of course, although each individual country is strong, they don't ever, they're quite happy to see something go wrong for their neighbour, um, but not for themselves, obviously. And all of that creates big issues. Now, after uh, the defeat of Napoleon and how Europe changes, you get a series of, of, they're tired of war, and you get a century or so of them trying to get along. Um, just, there are small wars, there's Crimean War, if you like, and not that small, but, you know, they're they're not in the scale of what was happening in the Napoleonic era. But that's largely out of tiredness, tiredness with, with fighting wars with each other. Uh, they're trying to have these international conventions, which then alliances that are, are dominating decisions by countries and all of that for best part of, of, of a century. But you're going to get those problems mounting up again, particularly very quickly between the likes of Germany and France. And then you come to the turn of the century um, and you get into this, the, the Prussians, the Germany unites, uh, all of these kind of things. After, you know, the Franco-Prussian War and after Germany unites, you, you again get this building up. Well, you know, Germany, France, Britain, those tensions, again, empires are going and Europe is being flooded with money from all of these assets it's acquiring unfairly throughout the world and 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 whether it's it's some of those stains on european history like slavery and things that were were propagated on on other countries across the world much to the shame of of europe europe is becoming wealthy on the back of so much of that um and of course that's bringing these tensions between the countries themselves you know where we go in world war 1 and 20 years later, you do it all over again in World War II. And ultimately, you get a European Union that once again comes out of that, out of a sense of Europe has... And by the end of World War II, let's just remember, Europe has lost its place. By the end of both of those wars, they have spent so much money economically killing each other. They've spent so much resources of people as well in, in, in killing each other. Europe can no longer have that primary place. It owes everything, money, financially, everything to the United States. So the United States comes out of this much stronger and now is able to take its place as the leading nation. But largely on the backs of the fact that these European countries have just destroyed themselves, just completely destroyed themselves. And they've thrown away um, any of their ill-gotten gains or, or, or well-deserved gains, uh, both together, didn't matter, lost them all really through this cycle of violence and EU comes about as an attempt to say if we actually work together Europe can have a place and it's in that sense you've got to see Europe because leaders who come up to the likes of Nice Treaty begin to see it in that sense they see it in that giant arc of history to them European Union starts out as let's just try keep benefits for trade, benefits to us growing, benefits to us getting along and they start to grow and they start to bring in new members but always trying to keep people together, always trying to have a sense of unity of purpose, of peace, of all of those things and they're very successful at doing that. 
Um, Europe does manage small outbreaks here and there, the, 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 the wars that, that are on the periphery. But generally, Europe manages to keep its members together and manages to keep them, interestingly, all heading in one direction, all with a unity of purpose for what they believe Europe can be. And a large part of that is that they see Europe as being a new Europe, a Europe that can be a beacon to the world rather than, as I say, that negative part of its history where it took over the world and and treated it badly, that Europe is going to be able to take a place at the forefront of world affairs and say, we learned lessons, you know, um, and this is having learned those lessons, you know, the European Union can be a much fairer and more trustworthy body because all of these countries have come together out of those very tough lessons that they learned. Now, um, why is that all important? Well, it comes back to where Europe is coming to uh, after about, you know, the, the growth of the European Union. Part of that is that it has grown and it has managed to get some strength despite being caught between the Soviet Union and the United States during all the years of the Cold War. And then the Soviet Union starts to collapse. Russia is still going to be strong and Russia will always worry Europe on its, on its borders. But at the same time, Europe is now in a position where Germany can once again reunify and the European Union plays a big part in helping Germany reunify, and all the countries of Europe do. And it's a time of hope, of renewal. Now, when the Soviet Union collapses, Europe immediately looks, and those leaders, and this is the thing you've got to understand, the continental thing, it wasn't a case of sitting there and going, well, you know what, we have a nice little system going here. We've about 12 to 15 members here, Grant. That'll do nicely. We don't need to expand beyond that, really. Uh, let's just keep it as a nice free trade. There was a mission there for them. They knew that mal all of these countries that are, are, are particularly in Eastern Europe were very much part of Europe for centuries. When you go back again and you want to go back to those 1800s and those Napoleonic Wars and all those lives that were lost, all the decisions, countries being formed out of these treaties like Romania, like countries like that, like... Europe has been part of that. Europe has done that. These were these were part of their empires, part of their countries. They were they were very much part of Europe. After World War Two, those countries were suddenly very much cut off from Europe and became something um part of this Soviet Union. Now, with the collapse of that, as far as Europe is concerned, if you're a European leader, then the idea that they were part of the Soviet Union was a small, if you like, blip on the historical map. These countries are very much European. They've always been part of that European history and story. Um, and therefore, it makes absolute sense that they're going to come back in and be part of the European Union. If you are envisaging this from any other point in history, you would be saying, of course, they're going to be part of it, a central part of it. Um because the further back in history you go, the more European these countries are. So Europe is always going to ask for the enlargement. They're always going to seek. If these countries want to come in and be part of it, it is a duty of Europe to be there and be part of it with them. Um, 
sometimes that was lost in, in countries like Ireland where maybe wasn't a sense of where well, we were involved. Because Ireland, well, we had troops and there were prime because we were invaded by Britain and Britain was taking conscripts out of Ireland and using them in battles like Waterloo. It wasn't a political war that Ireland or anybody else would have thought of. And what happened on the European stage was not something that would have exercised anybody, particularly in Ireland, except a very small elite. Uh, so therefore, you know, Ireland and, and countries like it may not have had that sense of just how European and how important for Europe um, many of the accession countries were. But it was definitely felt in Europe and it was a statement of where Europe was going. Coming out of having been caught between the Soviet Union and the United States, Europe was now in a position where it could get 27 member countries, build that up, let it grow and therefore it had a political vision and a dream, a dream where Europe was going to grow. And that's the momentum that carries Europe to a political union. Now, at the same time, it also had a very practical piece in it. Europe works on a very simple, well, not simple, but, you know, it's complex enough, but you can simplify it, if you like, um, economic basis here. You have wealthy countries like Germany and so on. Um what those wealthy countries are going to do is manufacture goods and services. They need to be able to sell those goods and services to somebody. If countries are poor, like Ireland was back in the day, then those countries can't afford those nice goods and services that are being produced in the likes of, say, Germany. So if you help them to advance economically, you help their wealth to increase. So it's kind of a wealth transfer over to the likes of a country like Ireland. As Ireland's wealth increases, what do we buy? More of the stuff that a country like Germany is producing. You are creating a market and a circular market which keeps growing and increasing and keeps ultimately long-term more wealth coming into your country, whether you're Germany or whether you're Ireland. Um, the problem is, of course, that as countries like Ireland, too, begin to grow and begin to get wealthy and we produce, we, too, want to export the stuff, the services and so on that we've got here and the, the highly educated populace and all that kind of stuff. And we want to send that to, to, to other countries. We need bigger markets. And what the European Union recognised was there's a whole set of countries there who need our support. Right now, they can't really be you know, uh, buying so much of the goods and services. But if we support them and grow those countries like we did Ireland, then those countries are going to buy a lot more stuff from us. There are new markets for us. And they start the process all over again. We win again. We get more countries. We get more trade. It makes sense. So, of course, Europe is looking for this new enlarged market, this new powerful market. Um, the problem is that that kind of thing is not always understood by the person on the street. So if you're a German, you're wondering, why are we, you know, we're wealthy, we're producing all this stuff, why are we just seemingly giving away free money to the likes of the Irish or the Greeks or any of these Eastern European countries? Why? Why would we be doing that? You know, that longer-term thing that, well, that's actually going to benefit us is lost because that's where it gets a little bit more complex to understand. It just seems like you're giving away free money or it's a charity case. And equally, um, you get in the likes of, of an Ireland or a Greece or any country saying, how dare you come and give us rules 
to do with this money or start to tell us we have to spend this way or that way. It doesn't suit us. Say, well, you can't just get there. There isn't such a thing as a free money. Money comes with rules for how you believe it should be spent in order to create this economy that works for everyone. All of that creates problems for the European Union. It creates problems in how they articulate these uh, debates with it. But when it comes to NICE 1, NICE 1 becomes about enlargement. And it hasn't been an easy process for the EU to get there because right throughout this, they've been getting to closer European Union, closer political union, but it's necessary. It's, it's part and parcel of where they want to go through that arc of history and that's why there will always be that momentum for it and they want to have this development to continue with these accession countries too. So in order for it all to happen the European Union needs to change how it works and how it achieves things, how it votes on things and how it creates uh, its decision making process. That's not going to be easy because it can be quite complex between all of these countries. In order to actually make something happen, uh, you have to have quite a, yeah, well, you have to be able to debate things. You have to be able to discuss things and be seen to discuss things, be seen to give everybody uh, a fair hearing. Um, and, you know, all of these kind of things always make me think sometimes like, we talk about the bubble and we talk about uh, where that bubble exists, particularly in politics and who understands what's going on and how much. Europe, too, is very much a, a, a bubble because Europe is one of those places where politicians um, are inclined to believe that, you know, while they're in the mix of all these deep, deep negotiations, this is hugely historically important and so on that everyone's paying attention. And of course they're not. You might be up till 4.30am having spent the night negotiating and going from room to room and back to me, you're thinking, wow, you know, this is going to change the face of European history and you're very much absorbed in it. Joe Soap is thinking about work the next morning. And it's going, oh, I don't know, there's something on the news last night, but they're negotiating something, don't, don't know. There isn't the capacity for us to grasp, you know, how... how important maybe all this is because we've all got busy lives meanwhile politicians see themselves as where surely everybody gets this surely and and the negotiators and if you like um what you're going to hear me talking about here is the elites sometimes because that does become the phrase we talk about and political elites are a thing um and the elites the people who run the country the politicians who lead it the negotiators civil servants the well-informed people at the core on the inside those elites they're bound to see all this as being particularly important and think, well, isn't this a wonderful thing? We're going to hammer out a treaty. These treaties don't just come about by, you know, sitting down and going, let's have a treaty and let's put it to the people. And, you know, sometimes, as you will see in this referendum, there's a sense when the anti uh, our opposition to the treaty kicks off, they say, well, you know what? Um, the treaty is, you know, uh, it's a con job on the ordinary person or they're trying to force you to do this as if there's some great agreement where everybody got round scratched their chin and went hey we've great idea pull the wool over the eyes of the people here we'll get this through and we do but actually when you look at the negotiations for these treaties and you follow them they're painful i mean this isn't exciting stuff and they're rowing and arguing over some of the smallest things or what seem like tiny things and these battles go on for months and years in these negotiations between countries 
And that's largely because all of these countries have their own agenda. And it's not some great centralised thing where they're able to say, well, here's what we want to achieve and here's how we're going to cut everyone into voting for it. So it's important to point that out. But it's also important to point out that the elites who are part of that don't get that other people aren't paying attention to all this going on. Uh, and that's problematic and it's problematic for the EU at this point because it's seeing itself as on the brink of something special. But actually the general populace around Europe isn't taking that much notice of what this is. It just is concerned for its own existence here and now and its own wealth and its own uh, benefits here and now today. So um, one of the things that's interesting sometimes is think about the EU too in, in that wider sense because... You know, again, that filters down to everybody and it filters down to you and me as we look here. I'm talking in this podcast about, you know, EU, EU referendums. As if, you know, we look at, we all know about the EU. And it just struck me um, quite recently uh, to say to a friend of mine uh, from, from Twitter, uh, Brie Cormier from, from Canada. And I said to her, you know, what do you think of the EU? And the first interesting response she gave me was, I had to Google that. And I think, I think first of all, that is something that is, you know, as a European, we've got to still wake up to. You know, that again, we can have that insular view. This is all so important. And you think, does an average person who maybe isn't following politics to any great degree or anything else outside of it, in Canada, in the US, anywhere, would they be aware really of what the EU is because we don't we tend to have still our leaders of our countries and all of that they're the ones going out and talking and meeting presidents and everything else so we don't have necessarily a great profile of the eu despite its huge uh, importance it just drifts along and i think that's just you know one of those things we've got to remind ourselves of that uh, you know in world terms still the eu is not seen as you know this massive big player that we would see it as 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 a block and as it is aiming towards and of course leaders are going to be aware of that now on the other side um i then said to her well you know now to look it up and see it what do you think and she said to me well you know, it it seems like a really good idea. It seems like a nice idea. And and I think that's how most of us see it. It is a nice idea. It is a good idea. And then she said, it seems like it might be hard to get things done and get decisions through. It seems complicated. And you're thinking, that's also it. And that's Europe in a nutshell, you know. It doesn't have this huge profile worldwide. It is a very good idea. It does some amazing things and has changed the face of Europe in social policy, in environmental policy, in workers' policy. So much good stuff comes from the European Union. Rules, legislation, standards, everything else. Really, really positive. Um, and therefore people are attracted to it and do like it. But on the other hand, it's mind-numbingly boring at times. It is very difficult to get things done. It is a slow, slow moving institution uh, that struggles with its decision making processes, particularly in a crisis. And, you know, sometimes in order to try speed those up, it appears that it's not being totally democratic. That's another problem that's going to kick off in here uh, within it, because it has this thing of the countries are democratic and aren't they doing their piece of democracy? And does the EU then just not say out well you do what you need to within your own countries and we're just setting rules here but each country 
agrees a rule. So the EU doesn't lay down laws. Um, but they do these treaties and they come up with these laws by agreement where you negotiate, this is what we're going to do in the environment. And it's all by negotiation. Um, but of course, it's handy too for politicians who don't want to take responsibility for a difficult measure. Let's say there might be difficult measures on climate change. They don't want to go home and say, yeah, listen, we have to close down that industry because it's polluting the atmosphere. Uh, so they say, oh, Europe wants to close down that industry. It's not me, it's Europe. And, and they're a good scapegoat. That's at the root of much that's happened in Brexit. And of course, in, in many of these referendums, you will see that narrative come back to haunt politicians where they've blamed Europe for something uh, just to get themselves out of a hole. But Europe is complex and uh, its its negotiation process is complex and very much uh, uh, open to debate. And I want to touch on um, a piece by uh, Peter Brennan. In his book, Behind Closed Doors, the EU Negotiations That Shaped Modern Ireland. Um, and what he said about, you know, structure funds, because this is all about, um, when we come to Nice, it's about how we're going to vote and how we're going to manage, having like 27 um, member states, how we're going to manage enlargement, because you can't have every country having a veto on every issue and all the way like we used to when it was smaller. Uh, that's difficult. And then as well as that, there's the money. The money is different because structural funds, cohesion funds, they've been at the centre of this in countries like Ireland, Spain, Greece, Portugal. They have benefited hugely from these structural and cohesion funds. Now we're going to be talking about doing structural and cohesion funds for all of the new member states coming in. Worry for smaller countries like Ireland is hold on, are we not going to get as big a piece of the pie? In every other referendum, well, up to about maybe Amsterdam, but in a lot of the others, it was about there's more money coming. Each treaty brought more money to Ireland, guarantee of more funds, more investment. This is the first time Ireland is not getting a treaty where it's been told, you're getting more money, Ireland, we're going to build more roads, we're going to do... It's a technical change to how it's going to vote. And what they're actually saying is there's going to be a lot more money but it's going to be spread out across a whole range of countries. Um, now, if you're in Germany or you're in France or you're in Italy, the, 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 there are countries that are worried about this because they're looking at it going, well, hold on, that means we're going to have to hand out more money for all of these. We, we struggle enough with the likes of Greece and Ireland. You know, Now we're going to have these more countries coming in. That was problematic. Also, just to put in context, from an Irish perspective, um, and yeah, look, let's deal with this point here. Um, and, and the Irish change here, but just a little bit. Uh, Ireland has changed dramatically by 2001 from it going in as a, a very poor country in 73. Uh, and I've covered this in other podcasts, how it grew, how it was still in that economic morass uh, by, by 86 and the Single European Act. By 92 and Maastricht was getting more money coming in, uh, in in terms of investment. This has all been positive. But by 2001, Ireland is booming. This is Celtic Tiger Ireland. Um, Ireland is now becoming one of the wealthier countries in Europe per head of population. They don't like to admit it. Joe Soap in the Street still likes to say, no, we're a poor country. The old thing about everything in Ireland is a third world country. We have a third world health service. We have a third world education system. And despite all of the evidence pointing 
in the opposite direction, in terms of outcomes, supports, everything, it's still the mantra that politically people like to debate about and people don't feel that we're wealthier or don't feel, yet they are, they've got more cars, they've got bigger houses, they've got more, and, and yes, there's huge problems with poverty in Ireland and there are huge problems with sectors of society that Ireland hasn't dealt with, but there's no denying Ireland's wealth has grown dramatically. And the underlying numbers say to Ireland, you're about to enter that territory where you need to become a net contributor. You are now going to be putting more money into the EU than you're going to be getting out because you're now going to be one of these countries that's helping other people. So in other words, we're going to kind of come a little bit like the new Germany where we now have to shift and say, no, it's worth putting more money into it than we get out of it because what we're now doing is developing the markets for our goods and services over there, just like was done for us. The problem is that that, again, for the man on the street, is a hard switch to flick. And it's kind of like, why are we suddenly giving... If we're putting more money into it than we're getting out of it, what's the point anymore? That's where Ireland gets to. Uh, and remember, at this point, Ireland has been the poster child for the success of this EU policy. One of the reasons all of these countries want to come into the EU is Ireland. They look at Ireland and think the EU transformed that country. The EU has had a massively important impact on everything that's gone on within that country. It has grown. It is now wealthy. It is what the EU say to a new country. Say, look, you know, do it right. Obey the rules. Ireland has done it right. Ireland obeyed the rules. Ireland, you know, did very well. And look at it now. There's your success story. That's what Europe is about. And, and they can go to their own voters in their own countries, in Germany or France or Spain, and say, yeah, but look what we did, and look at Ireland now, and look at its wealthy, and it's now able to buy products and services from us. All of those things. Ireland was that poster child. But that's going to change in this referendum, because Ireland's about to give itself a very negative view to all of those countries who are coming in wide-eyed, full of hope to the EU, wanting to be Ireland. And they're going to see, to them, they love Ireland. Ireland is, is, is what we all aspire to be, a nice small country that grew, that got wealthy, doesn't throw its weight around, is liked by all, and look at how successful it can be. We can aspire to be that. We can aspire to be a tiger economy too. But Ireland is going to give them a little bit of a shock because Ireland is going to show, in their eyes, what looks like a very selfish approach. An approach that says, hold on. We have a nice thing going here, getting our money in. And if somebody's coming in here going to take money off us, they can take a jump. We ain't interested in helping other countries get to where we are. We got up the ladder and we want to pull the ladder up after us. Now, we can get into the base of what the, the rights and wrongs of all that were as we go, but that was the perception at the time, certainly among Eastern European countries, as they wanted to get their opportunity to join. Now, just to take you through, though, what these negotiations look like. Um, and as I say, this is complex stuff. And you get a sense, I'm going to read from, from Peter Brennan's book here, uh, Behind Closed Doors, to give you a sense of just how, how complicated and complex, even in terms of the language, this is. Uh, but, quote, The Nice Treaty, however, signalled a shift to qualified majority voting within the Council from the 1st of January 2007, a procedural change that was widely regarded as essential if decisions on structural funds were to be reached in an enlarged EU. 
What this meant was that each member state could keep its veto over allocations to the structural funds when negotiating the 2007 to 2013 financial perspective. There were, however, differences of opinion over what was meant by multi-annual. The Spanish, Greek and Portuguese government understood it as meaning the same duration, seven years, as the current financial perspective. While a retaliatory declaration, the Danish, German, Dutch and Austrian governments adhere to the view that the length should be not be predetermined and that it is the Commission's prerogative to propose a shorter duration for the next budget. The declarations noted at Nice are the only statements found outside the main body of the TEC that affect the provisions of Title 27. The first requires the EC to consider nature conservation in promoting economic and social cohesion, while Declaration Number 30 acknowledges the need to take account of the structural handicaps which island regions face in developing legislation. The third declaration relates specifically to new provisions inserted at Maastricht into Article 227, requiring attention to be paid to the structural problems of the French overseas departments, the Azores, Madeira and Canary Islands. Also of note is the Protocol on Economic and Social Cohesion annexed to the TEC as a compromise solution to Spanish demands that changes to the structural funds agreed at Maastricht be given a firm legal basis, ideally in the TEC. The protocol provides for the political decisions to be implemented via secondary decision. End quote. Now, <clears throat> look, there you go. That's that's a description from, from Dr. Peter Brennan, who's an expert in this these EU negotiations um, in his book Behind Closed Doors. But let's be honest here. You know, you're talking about a voting system to allow for structural funds. And then you're talking about the, the, how many years does this apply to this is complicated and it's messy and it's not really that exciting so is joe soap on the street going to actually pay attention to this or get really wound up about it no does it have huge impacts yes because what you're seeing there are countries like greece um portugal you know looking for the the the, the length of time to be changed or predetermined the other saying no Who's responsible? The people of these very fiscally responsible countries. And you'll see this time and time again, the Germany's, Finland's, Austria, these kind of countries coming in saying, listen, you know, we've got to be careful with the old money here. And then you've got the other countries coming in and go, we've to be, you got to understand, uh, you know, we need injections of cash and you can't be like tight with money uh, as that if you want to boost economies and you want to get people going and get, you know, some kind of activities going uh, we're at a very different stage to you guys and then you see things like the structural funds in the islands that's totally different for islands ireland being an island too you know they face much different challenges to those who are actually in let's call it the european mainland um all of these debates kicking off and then you have french overseas department and the azores and, and and places like canary islands all those there's so much to actually consider. And, and as I always say, it fascinates me in Europe because I always think that there must be somewhere uh, a little European Union official scratching their head as they look at some of the things that pass across their desk. Because on the same day, I'm pretty sure there can be applications for drought relief in the likes of um, southern Spain or Greece or indeed Canary Islands and places like that. And at the same time, flood relief uh, in somewhere like Ireland or Scotland. Uh, that in itself is, is, is just gives you a sense of the dramatic shifts that Irish policy um, has to, or, or, or EU policy has to look at in the context of it. And, and Irish policy never has to consider. We generally are having similar things everywhere. And that is 
problematic for the EU and I think it's it's been a challenge for them over the last number of years. But anyway, the point being this is complex and it's not exciting but that's where the EU is going and that's where the EU uh, has found itself at this point coming into this enlargement treaty. That's what it's all about. Enlargement, voting rights, structural funds, cohesion funds. Ultimately, there's no goodie bag for Ireland. And that means the political elites are going to a referendum without being able to say, look, what this boils down to is we're getting a load of money and we're going to build new roads, new schools, new hospitals. New... We're not going to do that. It's about voting and why we're letting these countries in and how we're going to share out some of the money with them. That's not a kind of thing that's going to excite your electorate or get them going. So all of that gives you a sense of why Ireland maybe is trundling along to a point where they're going to lose this Nice referendum. Uh, there's not perhaps a huge amount of attention being paid to it. Now, just in case you're wondering, again, if we go back to that thing about the elites, was Ireland being this this uh, country uh, that, that disliked new members coming in? No, that's not really how people thought about it. If you ask people, should we allow them in? There was generally a perception that we should. It was just, I don't understand why we're doing it this way, and I don't understand, and why can't we get something more, and I'm unsure of this. And a large part of the population just being unsure about what any of this was or what it was about, more so than it being about the enlargement, um, or, or their feelings towards other countries in any way. But understandably, that perception was going to gain hold when Ireland lose this referendum. Now, um, at, at a political level, the elites were very much behind it. Uh, they were very much still pushing the line. And, and again, if I turn to Peter Brennan's book now, it, this piece is from after the, the referendum, but still... Um, it's important because it does give you that sense of where the elites were. And again, this is from Behind Closed Doors by Dr. Uh, Peter Brennan. And this is just, it gives you a sense of where the, the Irish political elite said about um, cohesion policy, the perspectives of it, and uh, what exactly they, they expected of new countries coming in. And he says, uh, quote, In a brief address to the second European Cohesion Forum, Ireland's Minister for Finance said that the following extract from the second cohesion report sums up the Irish experience of cohesion policy. Ireland demonstrates what can be achieved if structural funds assistance is integrated into a coherent policy, which in particular maintains a healthy macroeconomic conditions and which is supported by social consensus. It is, a, it is an example of good practice of the first order. After the third cohesion forum, Ireland's position was more well-defined. For example, it was stated that the new member states need solidarity from the Union to demonstrate to their citizens that their decision to pursue the path of European integration was the right one. Ireland acknowledged in a fulsome manner the benefits that had flowed as a consequence from cohesion funding. However, in a cautionary note aimed at the new member states, the point was made that cohesion policy alone would not bring about prosperity for a nation. The opportunities and assistance offered by EU membership have to run in tandem with a consistent and sound approach to economic development and management of the public finances, end quote. Now, <clears throat> that is, I suppose, a, a cautionary tale because, you know, not long after that, we're going to have economic collapse uh, with the, the financial crisis and all that went with that, but there'll be other podcasts to cover those in. But there is this point, and it's a point made uh, well and, and, and important for the EU at this point. 
Ireland is this poster child. Ireland says to them, we do want you to be part of it. Uh, and our political elites very much want to give an example and want to be seen as an example for these um, countries coming in. And they're at pains to say to them, yes, you're welcome, whatever. They also want to say to them, do remember that, you know, it's not just money. You have to spend it in the right way, on the right things. Ireland learned those lessons. And I suppose there's an underlying thing there, because again, this is something perhaps that the European Union is conscious of, that there's always these accusations of, oh, you accept these rules like sheep and countries are being taken over culturally or so on by these things. What the EU is trying to say here is, look, this works, but there have to be certain rules around how it works. There has to be certain ways and there has to be certain things you do. Just getting money does not make you a successful economy. Um, And while there may be people in Ireland who think that this was uh, 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 easy for the Irish or think that they should be um, allowed to spend in whatever way they like or that rules shouldn't be applied to them. In reality, it's always going to be a case that you need to have certain agreed approach and that's what the EU wants to emphasise, that maybe perhaps you are going to get accusations that you're lying down and taking all these rules and instructions for money but that's a necessary part of the process uh, and if you do it it works so i suppose in that sense there's a huge feeling of um just it can be seen as being a bit paternalistic but at the same time it's necessary for any of the countries that are giving the money to understand that it is going to be spent in the way that they believe it should be and the way they believe will work and not on you know a political promise or something that's going to be wasted and gone in no time so all of this points us to some of the reasons that it's complicated in trying to uh, debate the Nice Treaty referendum or to get people interested in it. And that's one of the features of this referendum because the turnout in the actual referendum is incredibly low. And as a result of that low turnout, Ireland is going to have a very different uh, approach to, to maybe how it sees the referendum. I mean, normally in referendums, you don't get these huge turnouts, but, you know, you will be talking between, you know, they'd be hoping up to about the 60%, but in a lot of the cases, it can drip, drop to within 40 and 50%. On the first Nice Treaty, the turnout is actually only 34.8%. So, so just under 35% of the electorate decide to vote on this issue. And that creates a problem uh, in assessing this result in the first place because result is a result no matter how much or how few people turn out. And, you know, it would be pointed out that, well, if it stood, everyone would be happy and say it was poor turnout, but, you know, the result stands. Well, of course it does. You know, that's what governments do deal with that in the next podcast on, on these two but here it, it, it shows you the level of apathy that is within the Irish populace for this treaty and, and maybe that's been growing for a while but if you were to look and compare that to perhaps some of the other EU referendums that we've had in Ireland and some of the other results that were there. I mean, if you look at the single, the, the when we decided to vote to join the EEC, well, that was perhaps a little bit more exciting of a referendum. And you got nearly 71% turnout with 83% yes. You know, it, it's a resounding kind of thing, but you can kind of understand maybe why that was. By 87, when we go to the single European Act, you're getting about 70% yes on a 44% turnout. So, 
the turnout begins to drop. Uh, in Maastricht, you get it back up. It's 57%. It's a decent turnout for the, the, the Maastricht Treaty. You get about 69% uh, voting in favour of that. So a steady, you know, almost at that, that 70%. A little bit of a warning, perhaps, in, in Amsterdam. You get a good turnout again, 56%. So I'm pretty much the same turnout, almost. But those in favour drop to 61.7%. That's, you know, 7%, 7% of in us. You know, that's a, a little bit of a drop. Now, Amsterdam wasn't an exciting treat either, but they did get people out and voted and all of those good things. But ultimately, perhaps there was a warning there for the Irish electorate. That or, or the Irish elite, that the electorate wasn't just as sure on some of these treaties. When you come to the Nice Treaty referendum, uh, you're going to get this 34% uh, turnout. You're going to get 53.9% of voting no to it, 46.1% vote yes. And that seems like a pretty big turnaround on the figures. But then you do have to allow for the fact that the turnout is almost half of what it's been in some of the previous referendums and that's problematic but it would be easy to say look it was just a bad turnout in Missouri, but that apathy was part of it i mean why do people not feel that we really want to get out and vote for this or it is important and why was the political parties not able to get their vote out to say yes this nice treaty is important we've got to get it over the line um, that apathy is part and parcel. The people staying away might not have voted against, but they weren't committed enough to believe they should vote for it. That speaks to a problem. And therefore, we shouldn't just look at the turnout and say it was that alone. We have to look at some deeper things. Now, former Taoiseach uh, Gareth Fitzgerald uh, has, uh, in his book, Reflections on the Irish State, touches on some of the issues that have been in Ireland for quite a while uh, when it comes to the EU and, and uh, its, its position. Now, I know uh, you're going to know Dr. Gareth Fitzgerald is very pro-European and very much a fan of the European Union uh, in, in his time as, as Taoiseach and afterwards. So, you know, look, at he has a view from that perspective. Uh, but here's what he says in it, and he is always worth listening to in terms of uh, getting that insight. So from Dr. Gareth Fitzgerald, quote, during the past 40 years, there have always been uh, divided views in Ireland between those who support membership of the European community and those who oppose it. In each of the referendums held in 72, 87, 19, 98 and 2001, the particular community treaty being put to the electorate was opposed by elements at the left end of the political spectrum. In 1972, the Labour Party opposed membership, as did official Sinn Féin. But Labour immediately accepted the decision of the 81% who voted in favour of a session in a 70% poll. And much later, the successor of official Sinn Féin, Democratic Left, now merged with Labour, also became supportive of the European community. However, more extreme elements of the left have maintained their opposition and strikingly have laterally been joined by some of the small Catholic right, Moreover, when mainstream politics elements in the Progressive Democrats became increasingly critical of the social orientation of the EU, contrasting European attitudes on social issues with the free market ethos of the United States, this reflected a commitment to high growth for its own sake, a concept strongly supported by Charlie McCreevy, Fianna Fáil Minister for Finance, who, in office, increasingly behaved and spoke as if he were a member of the Progressive Democrats rather than of the centrist Fianna Fáil party. 
By the time the Nice Treaty was put to the electorate in a referendum for the first time in 2001, these right-wing critics had been joined by the nationalist wing of Fianna Fáil, represented by two ministerial grandchildren of Eamon de Valera, who himself had never been a supporter of the European community. At a time when enthusiasm for the European community has ebbed amongst the Irish public, those negative sounds from the right within parliamentary politics force the traditional anti-EU stance of extra-parliamentary left and Catholic right. Apathy amongst supporters of the EU made it possible for the opponents to block the Nice Treaty with the votes of only 18% of the electorate. End quote. Now, there you go back to this point. The actual no vote, we're talking about it's 53% voted no, that was representative of only 18% of the actual uh, electorate. Uh, so, you know, this is a very small group, but equally an even smaller group who have voted in favour. And you have to admit that and you have to go with that and that's democracy and that's how it works. However, when we're looking at uh, a result like this and we're looking at what it is that the EU is trying to do, we have to take into account where that result goes and what it means. What Fitzgerald does point to, however, there <clears throat> that I think is really worthy of mention is how there was always a certain opposition to the European Union, as there would be in any country. There was always that sense. Those of you who listen to the podcast on a session, you'll know, understand some of those arguments by leading figures in Labour, like Michael D. Higgins, that it was going to destroy the workers and, you know, all of that kind of thing. It was, it, there was a lot of fear about it. Now, Labour quickly said, OK, actually, this is a good thing. And it's actually benefited workers hugely. And a lot of the profits of doom at that stage, you know, it didn't transpire. However, as I've said to you in previous podcasts, what were they going to say? They're going to say it hasn't just transpired yet, but it could happen. It's gradually getting there, all of that kind of thing. Now, what Fitzgerald is pointing to is the fact that that left opposition, that's where it generally came from, a, a strong left, that this was some kind of elitist Europe that was, you know, of, of, of wealthy nations and so on and small nations and, and, and working people and all that. We're not going to benefit from this. Uh, that argument was very much part of a, a hardcore left. But the mainstream political parties, the main political parties, you know, even Labour after 73 quickly come round to the view, this is really good for us and it's really good for, for workers and it's really good for society. So you have huge support for it. But over time, what you get is that that hard, hard left, if you like, remains opposed to EU. Um, now, for my money, one of the reasons these things remain is is that political organisations and political parties need to make a name for themselves. They need space. They need to be allowed uh, room. And, and it's attractive. If you look at new parties that kind of come into Irish politics, um, particularly the likes of Sinn Féin in, in their growth when they start to come into politics, uh, the Green Party, and some of these multitude of, of, of small, hard-left parties that grow up, not only is it a case that they might be opposed in terms of their political ideology to something like the EU, they're opposed because that's where there's space in the political spectrum. If all the big mainstream parties say Europe is good and you no know, unconsidered opinion, if we're in government, we don't want to be in government without the European Union because when you're in government, it's a big help. It's a massive help. Um, and it's, it's really important that we're in there. Um, if you're in government, governments get that and governments automatically view that. If you're not and you've no real prospect of getting in government, it's a great way 
to differentiate yourself from the parties. Pick up a few extra votes on the margins by people who are going, eh, I wonder though, I wonder why everyone agrees it's great. Maybe it's not that great. And you get to carve out a little bit of space and get yourself a little bit of attention. So it becomes obvious that any new parties that kind of grow up become anti-Europe, if you like. Although they wouldn't say they're anti-Europe. For instance, the Greens would continually say, we just believe there's a democratic deficit in Europe and we think it needs to be more democratic. And that's how they will explain that, of course, when they get into government, as the Greens do grow and then they get in, then they swap over and they become pro-European, if you like, or voting yes in referendums. They're all tricky situations for political parties. But a large part of it too is that they are trying to make some space for themselves. Interestingly, in Ireland, though, and indeed, you see this reflected across Europe in, in protests after the, the financial collapse. And even today, you can see it. Um, this hard left that was always there is suddenly getting support from what's seen as a right wing. So the Catholic kind of thing. Now, in other referendums, you're going to notice why they're heading in that anti-European direction. Because Europe has been a leader of social policy. Europe has been a leader in terms of human rights policies and all of those kind of things within its member states and standards. The ultra strong Catholic right wing have kind of looked and said for many referendums, they've been saying Europe is going to bring in divorce. Europe is going to bring in abortion. Now, Europe did neither of those things. Ireland did those two things themselves very much. The population decided themselves they wanted those things. But there was always this narrative that the Irish people don't want them, but this dodgy Europe is going to somehow bring it in. And that was largely because there were European court decisions and other things that did influence um, policy in Ireland and did influence, you know, that this, you're out of step with Europe. And of course, they knew that even the fraternising with countries that saw this as the norm was going to make this difficult for Ireland and, and for Irish people would change over time. So they were right in that respect. But the Catholic right always believed that the European Union was something they were kind of suspicious of. They were suspicious of it being, you know, through these referendums, there was always a thing, it'll bring in abortion by the back door. It'll bring in, they wanted to kind of stop that, stop the the, if you like, the legislative creep from Europe. <clears throat> so um, it makes sense in one way that they're going to be part of it. And then you've the right wing economic side of it that also believes, uh, yeah, you know what, this whole thing with um, Europe, you know, Europe needs to, to, to back off a little bit on things. And economically, a right that begins to say, yeah, we're not uh, totally at ease. So by Nice 1... There's a hardcore, not a majority, but a hardcore groups from the right who are anti-abortion um, and, and Catholic or right as in uh, very right wing economically and what they see almost in, in, in how they want to do it. And they think the EU pushing all these workers rights and being a little bit socialist in its views is a danger. Uh, and on the other hand, this left wing uh, who, who are always opposed to it. But they begin to merge into one thing. And that, that, that old thing of when you keep going to the extremes, they eventually begin to meet up and circle back and become like each other. Um, they are coming together on this view that perhaps the EU is not a good thing. And they have a very simple argument about that. Uh, you know, just oppose it, just go against it. But Fitzgerald points to another point, point at this uh, juncture that we have to look at, which is why... Within the political establishment, 
weaknesses begin to grow. Now, Gareth Fitzgerald was a Fine Gael uh, Taoiseach, and of course you might say there's a rub in there against Fianna Fáil uh, in, in what he's saying, but there's truth in it. There's no getting away from the fact that Charlie McCreevy, who was a Fianna Fáil minister, a popular Fianna Fáil minister, but was definitely on the right wing of Fianna Fáil. And Fianna Fáil has, for generations, been this largest party. Not anymore, but it was at this point in time, this huge monolith in Irish politics. Um, and it has wings within itself because it's such a broad church. It's a centrist party, but it has people who are to the centre-left very strong in Fianna Fáil. And then you have people who are centre-right in Fianna Fáil. McCreevy would have been towards that centre-right and they get pulled depending on who they're in government with. At this point, Fianna Fáil in government with the Progressive Democrats who are a right-wing party, Fianna Fáil gets pulled a little bit to the right and, and McCreevy's comfortable with that. Um, and in his view, you know, again, Europe needs to take a bit of a chill pill on certain things and between him and, as I say, the grandchildren of Eamon de Valera, Sheila de Valera, um, Eamon O'Keeve, both kind of also express reservations about the EU and Europe. And that scepticism begins to grow. And that's big within Fianna Fáil as to how it sees itself, how it, uh, uh, as this huge, because it, it, it's almost going to win an overall majority, remember, within the year. So for Fianna Fáil, there's a big question mark here about its views on Europe, uh, because it's very much there. Fine Gael is one of these parties that's been... You know, as everyone always kind of looked at Fine Gael, if you wanted a European army, Fine Gael is a party that would probably back that European army. If you want a federal European state, Fine Gael would probably be the party that you would expect that to come from. Fine Gael are extremely pro-European, have always been hugely pro-European, to a point where it makes others nervous. So, Fianna Fáil, on the other hand, we're kind of seen as this more safe approach, centrist again, approach of calm, we're good like this about Europe, but we'll stick up for the bits we don't like and that kind of thing. But all of those perceptions create problems now coming up to this particular referendum. And this is even further evidenced um, in some of the tensions that grow up between uh, the Irish Finance Minister, Charlie McCreevy, and the European Union. Because at this point, again, remember, Ireland is... Being quite successful, um, money's good, the economy's good, jobs are booming, everything's looking positive. And then there are these kind of things where the EU starts saying, listen, warning that the economy might be starting to overheat there. This isn't a good policy to implement right now. Ease back on that. Ireland doesn't like that. And Charlie McCreevy didn't like it at the time, getting a bit of a warning or a censure from the um, European Union to kind of on budgetary policy. Because he's saying, listen, We've actually built this state and we've done a good job and we've created all of this boom and we've managed it. We know what we're doing. You know, we don't need you sticking your nose in. Now, as it turns out, McCreevy would, by a stroke of, well, call it luck, but uh, he gets proven right because, you know, for these inflationary budgetary policies, they happen um, at a time when September 11th, uh, also happens and when uh, that happens 9-11 happens in the states and the world goes into a little bit of an economic blip Ireland is actually pumping money into the economy which allows us to push on from there so he seems like it's vindicated very much not vindicated though would be Irish budgetary policy after that when uh, things go off the rails altogether and Ireland completely overheats their economy and, and Europe is powerless to stop it until economic crash happens and all that but Beside the point, just to give you some context. 
but it is one of these things that is evidenced by how uh, they begin to react to each other um, and how they see it. Um, so let's let's look at a paper um, by uh, called Fianna Fáil, Tenacious Localism, Tenuous Europeanism, um, that was authored by Katie Hayward with some assistance from, from myself at the time. But Innes uh, says, it is no coincidence that the rare but notorious public clashes between Fianna Fáil and ministers and their counterparts in the Council, the Commission and the European Central Bank have centred on the management of the Irish economy. The potential for tension was illustrated most infamously in early 2001 when Fianna Fáil's Minister for Finance, Charlie McCreevy, received a reprimand from the EU for implementing an over-inflationary budget. Not only was McCreevy unrepentant, he was publicly supported by Cabinet colleagues and the Taoiseach who agreed that the Commission warnings did not make a whole lot of sense. Fianna Fáil was annoyed at what it saw as EU interference in its economic policies and this tension no doubt had a trickle-down effect on public opinion and thereby on the first referendum on the Nice Treaty held some three months later. McCreevy was one of the first to welcome the no result as a remarkably healthy development. Willie O'Dea applauded the healthy Euroscepticism within Fianna Fáil that it represented. Eamon O'Keeve admitted he had voted no himself based on his experience of scary moments in Brussels. And Sheila de Valera interpreted the vote as a clear message that people are against further integration in the EU. Such comments from sitting ministers undermined the government's credibility and indicated a growing schism within the party on the subject of European integration. The row, hastily glossed over in time for the second Nice Treaty referendum, revealed two crucial points. First, tension between local, national, specifically rural, urban interests, was becoming an increasingly public problem within Fianna Fáil. Secondly, the party as a whole would not countenance overt EU interference in national decision-making, particularly not in the economic area. Uh, end quote. And there you see that tension that Fianna Fáil is bringing that that is part of being reflected, this large, huge party. But it's in microcosm what's going on in Ireland. There is a growing tension. There is a Euroscepticism. And the elite, if you like, at the top, who normally held this together and said, we're all pro-European and Europe's great, we all get out and support it. Suddenly there's a little shift in that. And that row between McCreevy and that should not be underestimated as the damage that did within Fianna Fáil, as in thinking, we don't have to get out and support Europe. Europe win its own referendums. We've our own business to do here. Uh, and there is a little bit of that at play here as well. So there can be little doubt but that this had an impact on uh, the referendum it had an impact on uh, Fianna Fáil as, as how it was growing as a party that was perhaps a reflection of what was going on in the rest of Ireland. Now, during this time, you had a sense that Ireland was, it had money, it could pay for things itself, it didn't need EU money. It was a little bit, you know, oh, it's a shame we're losing that EU money. Uh, but also at the same time, this was grow, grown up, I, I suppose, these arguments have grown between one side who are kind of annoyed that Ireland is going to lose uh, its EU money and, you know, is perhaps unsure about that and, and becoming a net contributor and changes to voting and all those kind of things. And then another side that says the problem with the EU now is that we don't need the money. And what we've got is money we don't need, but interference interference from the EU now in how we run our things. And there's a certain group that would like to say, I think at this point, 
Ireland can survive perfectly well without the EU. Big deal. You know, we need to tell them, forget it. We're not interested anymore. We can forge our own path. We're a strong, independent country. And this whole idea of independence takes root at this point of what is independence? What is sovereignty? What are all these things? And it begins to get a sense of, of this, uh, as Ireland is, is, is booming, one of the things that happens at this time is that perhaps over previous years, Irish nationalism, if you like, was a little bit subdued. It was wrapped up in IRA activities in the north and a little bit of shame about that and a little bit of, you know, you didn't want to be waving tricolours everywhere and anywhere. But that's changed over the previous 20 years. And all of a sudden, a wave of Irish nationalism and being proud of the country is, is, is very much to the fore. Um, and that, too, uh, presents a, a bit of a challenge because while it can be a very positive thing, it is also uh, brings certain negatives in that there's a sense of Ireland being, you know, don't need anyone else and we're this great country on our own. It also it creates around this time an Irish populace that's unsure of, of what it means. When we start talking about you know, freedom and nationalism and sovereignty. And that'll continue right over the next decade because we'll see it in later referendums too. But there is that thing, and I, and, and I always compare it to, you know, that there's always a really cheap, easy argument to run to, which is that great august hero of Irish uh, independence, Michael Collins, who, you know, was assassinated. So therefore, um, Michael Collins has gone down in history as this, you know, halcyon great figure, the shame we lost him and all that. But the truth is... There is a lot more to assess in Michael Collins than just that simplistic picture. And around this time, you would have had debates and people saying, Michael Collins wouldn't have accepted this. We hear it again later on in the banking crisis and all that. Of, oh, Michael Collins wouldn't have accepted the bankers. Michael Collins accepted Ireland as part of a commonwealth in order to get independence. Um, Michael Collins accepted that Irish currency would be a derivative of sterling. Uh, effectively part sterling almost. Um, Michael Collins, Michael Collins didn't have any interest in all these big economic things. And if there'd been a European Union that said to him, you can have this currency instead of that form of sterling, and instead of being in the Commonwealth, you can be in part of here, Michael Collins would have taken it with both hands uh, at that time. Absolutely. So, you know, we, we have this kind of view that, oh, the heroes of 1916 would have all been against this. They, you know, it's again, it's a stupid argument. We don't know what they would think, but we certainly know that there's nothing in their record that suggests that they were out there saying, well, we're against uh, anything like the European Union if it had been on offer to us, uh, because all of their records suggest they were quite happy to take any kind of uh, help they could from any other source. <clears throat> However, um, in looking at this, it's important to remember that nationalistic streak was there. So... Ireland has this problem with how it sees itself on the world stage and how it is being perceived on the world stage. And this new, if you like, cockiness has entered in at this point. And we've got this incredibly complex treaty. But treaties tend to be led by the elites. And here's the problem with referendums. Coming to a public who hasn't really been following this ref negotiations isn't really, you know, we still ask the ordinary Irish person all these years on what is qualified majority voting. I'm pretty sure most of them can't answer. Um, and why would they need to know? Um, I'm pretty sure, you know, when and where vetoes are being used or what structural or cohesion funds are, or how many years they're for or how they're going to be apportioned out and the formulas being used is of little to no interest to any of us in our daily lives. Then you bring a treaty and you say, 
here's all these things that we think are very, very important and you have no real expertise in, but, you know, you decide if we should be part of it. What are they going to do? They're going to ask someone else. They're not going to be able to assess this themselves. I'm not a European political expert or an economic expert. So I'm going to have to look up who somebody I trust and say, well, what do they say I should do? Now, in the older systems up to this point, you have the political elites in big, strong parties, particularly Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Labour. But they are weakening. And as those big parties weaken and the vote becomes more diverse and smaller parties are growing who have an anti-European side to it, so too is the hold of keeping people believing in trust that Europe is the right thing. That trust is breaking down. <clears throat> now, as that breaks down, you're going to have uh, a rush of people towards you know, more extreme opinions, more questioning opinions that say, well, no, I don't have to go with it just because you told me to do it. Uh, it very much becomes part of the political mainstream. And then you have big parties like Fianna Fáil having this little crisis of confidence that they turn around and say, we're unsure. We're unsure um, if if we're fully behind this or not. And, and maybe we've some healthy Euroscepticism within the party. Having that at this moment is probably reflective of society, but it's not a good thing in terms of actually winning a referendum. So, uh, and I want to turn quickly to um, a, 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 a piece here, uh, which is in the uh, a paper called Party Politics in and the EU in Ireland, North and South, by Mary C. Murphy and Katie Hayward, and a piece that they say uh, within this on, on, on where the elites lead um, uh, Ireland in these uh, referendums and why they're important. They say, quote, The fact that what O'Mahony in 2009 identifies as populist culture or the attraction of voters to Eurosceptic parties takes place at the times of referendums on EU treaties in Ireland suggests that Europeanisation has not become embedded among the Irish public. Moreover, the effects of elite withdrawal in the first referendums on the Nice and Lisbon treaties in Ireland indicate just how much Europeanisation is an elite-led, elite-sustained project in Ireland. Party leaders manage incursion by the EU into the national policy arena and do not want to allow it to compromise the party agenda. Among the party elite, enthusiasm for the EU is generally overt compared to that of the grassroots, and yet this goes hand in hand with a strict control over policy change in response to Europeanisation. Thus, if we want to understand the scope and limitations of Europeanisation on party politics in Ireland, we need to consider the prime position of the party elites in this process. End quote. Now, why that is, is, is important there from uh, Mary C. Murphy and Katie Hayward is that what you see over time in politics is parties become Europeanised. They like the European ideal. They agree with us. They agree with the general thrust of policies. And there is a Europeanisation happens where we, we become aligned with that. But what is evidenced um, in, in, in the papers that are there, academic research on this in, in Ireland, very much points to the fact that the elites become Europeanised. So the leaderships, the people at the top who have the opportunity to travel to Europe, who have the opportunity to study this at first hand, who have the opportunity to meet the visionaries and the people who create it and understand how it all works, become very enthusiastic about it. When you go down into the parties, and down into the public, 
the opportunities lesson for that. And what they are is they're just taking the policy and they're hearing it at second and third hand. They don't get the opportunity. They're much less Europeanized. They are purely taking the view of those who have become Europeanized and are they're able to trust them. If that trust breaks down, then you've got a problem because the people on the ground here, they're not as Europeanized. They're not going, yes, we all follow the European ideal. Yes, we follow the European way of doing things. That creates uh, an issue. And, and indeed, I would suggest that these are issues that have been part of the Brexit process in the UK as well, where you see that same kind of thing, a Europeanisation at one side of elite, but then a grassroots uh, issue at the other side and indeed among a general public. So what they're pointing to there is that this disconnect happens and risk gets really important in this one because... The elites kind of pull back. You've just heard me talk about Charlie McCreevy and that spat with the EU. Now, if you've got a lack of Europeanisation, you're going to have people kind of go, yeah, well, I don't see why we do follow the EU anyway. And if the elites kind of withdraw, and what did happen in the first Nice referendum, and we'll see this in, in, in a moment, but you do have those political elites pulling back and saying, listen, we have a general election to fight in 12 months' time. We need money for that. We've lots and lots of issues and capital that's going to be expended trying to just keep this going and, 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 and keep the government going and get to the elections and get our policies through. Do we really want to be out there on this Nice referendum, which is a very technical thing anyway, and we're going to get flack for it anyway? No. So what you get is the elites kind of withdraw. The leaderships of the parties here, it's poor. The marketing is poor. The posters are poor. The ideas behind it, the debate, anything else, it's all really, really poor. And that's largely because political parties struggling for cash and money, preparing their war chest for an election, are not really getting into this. But you have a very committed no campaign who say this is a chance, this is a moment, an opportunity to strike at the heart of all these established parties and take them down by defeating this referendum. Now, that elite withdrawal is important in this referendum because you don't get a sense that really the leadership of parties are as committed to it. And that's right across all the parties. Fine Gael are leaders of the opposition. And there's a sense of, listen, we're getting ready for a tough election uh, too. The polls aren't looking great let's not be busting a gut to help Fianna Fáil get their referendum through. They're in government, their job. And meanwhile, in Fianna Fáil, you have cabinet ministers who are about to admit that they're going to vote no because they're a little bit suspicious of the EU. That's not at all connected. And in fact, they're, they're kind of healthy talking about this Euroscepticism. They're kind of proud of it. Now, if you've got that... That's the fact that the people who should be Europeanized, who should be, you know, pushing this and that the grassroots are then taking it on trust, they're not going to do it. So you don't get. So you lose the effect of having the big machines that these parties have because their grassroots are not going out canvassing. They're not dropping leaflets indoors. They're not spending a wet Tuesday night out in Tubber Curry going round house to house in order to get votes out for a nice referendum. No. Let the Europeans go and fight their own battles if they want to, not ours. See see that kind of disconnect and how it perpetuates through the Irish. That's where the problem has been. And that's where it really becomes evident within uh, the Nice Treaty referendum. Because 
that elite withdrawal, that elite's kind of saying, listen, that's a, it's, we're the Europeanized ones, but we've just told you, yes, vote for it. And we kind of leave it at that. And we're not quite as committed. Gives you a huge gap, huge gap on the ground. We're no longer are these party members sure that they should be following this, but they're also unsure um, of their own position in it. You know, eh, maybe they've in the past have gone out and done it because, well, that's what the party leader wants. Those grassroots, not so sure. Now, in the wider public, even greater. Because, as I say, this is joined up with a sense of right and left conjoining at the extreme to say, we actually have an issue with Europe and it's about time we started expressing it. And all of this comes at a time for Europe. And, you know, Europe, I think, was probably a little bit blindsided by this because every other country is going to manage to say, right, uh, you can vote this through in your national parliament and you get it through. It would have been easily gone through the Irish national parliament as it was in other EU countries. But Ireland has a constitution. So do other countries. But you'll remember from previous referendums, we also had a court judgment that said we had to have referendums and no government in the intervening time has really had the courage to go back and seek to have that decision of the Supreme Court, which wasn't exactly, you know, cast iron kind of stuff, but they've never wanted to challenge it or go back or seek to uh, revisit that decision. And that decision is that you're going to have to go for referendum on these kind of treaties. And it creates Ireland is the only country out of the EU that has to do this, put it to the public because of this decision of the court on its referendum. Now, that's a problem and it's a problem the EU knows because the EU is looking at them going, there's a reason the rest of the other countries aren't going to be doing this and have provisions there to stop it because it's too complex. It's boring and you can't expect someone in the course of a three or four week campaign to understand what the rest of us sitting around the table have negotiated for maybe the best part of a decade. And we hardly understand it, you know, it, it doesn't make sense, to, but it's going to happen. However, they are confident. The Danes in 1992 voted against Maastricht and the Irish put it firmly back on the agenda by managing to get it passed um, and, and quite comfortably. Ireland has been this pro-European country. So the EU probably, you know, around this time looking going, yes, yes, but Ireland has had such benefits, probably fine. You know, if, if there's one country you want a referendum in, Probably Ireland, yeah. They'll they'll manage it. They'll see it. They know that among the populace, and and here's the thing: right across Europe, there is this sense that an opinion poll that's showing the public don't always buy in to this new Europe. They're not always supporting it. But that's what I mean about the difference of the leaders. Going back to that, they see themselves on an entirely different arc. For the public, the arc is here and now. It's what's happening to our incomes, our jobs, our health services, our poverty, our all these things here and now in this decade. How are we going to address them? What's this going to cost us? What are we doing? What are our policies and all these? That's where the public exists. The political elites and leadership, as I say, they're operating on a whole different arc of history. They're now on the brink of transforming Europe for the first time into something that's really uh, united since the Napoleonic era, you know, this is this is bringing Europe into to a whole new um, era for just itself and its policies and its politics and these countries. And it's welcoming back in these Eastern European countries that have been cut off from lands where that were central to European policy 
for decades and, and, and now it's been cut off and now it's all back in. They, they're seeing all this on a whole different scale and they're looking forward to a time when Europe could be a powerful 27-member block of countries that have become wealthy and shared their wealth and grown and are powerful on a world stage. But to the public, they're not on that arc. We're not influencing any of that. We're just, look, what does it mean here and now? And is it addressing problems here and now? And therefore, that disconnect kind of, and it'll always be there. Um, but Europe probably thinks that Ireland here is all right because of all of the countries. As we say, this is the poster child. This is the one that shows policies work. Ireland helped it out. It grew. It played by the rules. It did things the right way. And look at Ireland. And a shining example they've come through. as, it, And now all of a sudden that shining example is turning out to be a bit like in their view, again, taking an EU view here, I, you know, how it might look, they're kind of looking on, it's like our darling child, uh, which we were so proud of, we put all this effort into, and it grew up being wonderful, and we're so proud of it, and then it suddenly seems to have hit its teens, and it's turned into the brattiest teen you can imagine. It's brash, and it's saying, who the hell are you? I don't want you. And all of a sudden, Europe is kind of going, oh, what's going on with Ireland? So you can imagine, again, almost a paternalistic thing is kicking in. What's your issue, Ireland? You know, haven't we done enough by you? And, and you're the one we were so proud of. They're going, yeah, well, I did it myself. Huh? Yeah, no thanks to you. So there is almost that, that, that difficulty. And this is going to dog Ireland for quite a while on, on that European stage for the next while. But that's where it's coming from. It's coming from that fact that the elites are disconnecting themselves from it. They're not getting stuck in. They haven't really addressed this within their parties. And they've been quick to allow Europe to take the blame for certain things. When they don't want a policy, they say, well, that's Europe want that. Um, and remember, this is coming at a time when there are a lot of changes coming. The euro is about to be introduced and the Irish currency is going. And at a time when people are kind of growing in their nationalism and pride, there's a little bit of excitement about the euro. Uh, yeah. But then on the other side, people going, uh, you know, I'm miss, going to miss the old uh, punt, the old uh, Irish pound. That's that's, uh, you know, I'm going to miss seeing that. It's a bit of a shame. And those things don't help Europe either, because there's always a resistance to the more modern. And out of that, uh, remember that, you know, again, we think about things like the euro. People say, well, the euro doesn't make sense as a currency. We shouldn't have it. It's not doing all these high flung economic things that it was meant to do. Fact is, Europeans love being able to travel from Ireland to Greece to Spain to Portugal and use the same currency, not have to change and then people say, but that's ridiculous. You can't have a currency that's all the risk that's involved in it and all the cost it is to put it up just to help people going on their holidays. But that's exactly it. That's exactly what a political vision is. It's about bringing people on on something that does not necessarily have to make perfect sense economically in the here and now because you're actually achieving an ideal. And, and the euro was a lot about the ideals and that's why it would not be allowed to fail. Uh, even though many of the commentators thought in later years it would, touch on that in a later podcast you couldn't because this is a symbol of Europe in the same way as it is ridiculous to us at times to think that someone would die or in order to hold up a piece of cloth it's a piece of cloth why would anyone die for the piece of cloth you know show any other uh, species or, 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 or animal the piece of cloth and say would you trade you for this piece of cloth they wouldn't but when that piece of cloth is a flag 
suddenly people get attached to it and they're willing to do amazing things in or around it or to save it or to lift it in the heat of battle. Why? Why do we get so attached to these? But symbols really matter. And things like that are becoming big symbols for Europe. But when you try to bring them in, you are going to face that pushback because older symbols are being pushed away and Ireland is beginning to feel that a little bit too. So it becomes clear at this point that you can't take this for granted, that all of these um, elements are coming together and that perhaps Ireland's referendum experience is about to change. And uh, to illustrate that too, I want to turn to Jane O'Mahony in a paper she wrote, Ireland's EU referendum experience. Um, and Jane O'Mahony says, uh, quote, until June 2001, Ireland's experience of the European Union referendums was a positive one. Referendums were comfortably carried, helping to copper fasten Ireland's reputation as a constructive and communitaire uh, EU member state. The supportive attitude of the electorate in referendums on accession, single European Act, Maastricht and Amsterdam treaties was mirrored by the public opinion polls on the EU. A healthy majority of those surveyed declared themselves in favour of membership and appreciated the perceived benefits that membership brought Ireland. The rejection of the Nice Treaty by the electorate in 2001 was therefore a major shock to the political elites and for the first time indicated that perhaps Irish consensus on European matters could not be taken for granted. End quote. Now, this is the thing that has begun to change in Ireland. You can't take it for granted. You can't assume anymore that Ireland is going uh, from this referendum on to, to support uh, any EU enlargement, any changes to the EU. And again, I know people are going to say to me, Johnny, look, you know, the turnout was so low, but the turnout's a turnout. You know, that's just it. The fact is people weren't motivated on the other side to back it or go out and ensure they backed it. And all of that scepticism leads to this thing that no matter what way you look at it, the public weren't particularly bought into the experience and bought into what they wanted. It didn't matter enough to them. Um, going on from, from, from that point, Jane O'Mahony uh, continues and she says, uh, quote, At Nice 1, the broad consensus across the political establishment in favour of ratification was again in evidence. The smaller parties of Sinn Féin, the Green Party and the Socialist Workers Party all campaigned against the treaty. The Nice Treaty was sold by Yes campaigners as being in Ireland's best interests, as it would facilitate the enlargement of the EU from 15 to 25 and thereby give Irish industry access to an enlarged single market. The referendum also took place on the same day as two other referendums on the International Criminal Court and the death penalty. With their eye on a general election in 2002, the political parties advocating a yes vote were reluctant to spend money campaigning and the message put forward to the voters was unclear. In contrast, no campaigners, including Anthony Coughlin's national platform, the No to Nice group led by uh, abortion campaigner Justin Barrett, Panna and others uh, ran a highly committed and visible campaign. Their main slogan, if you don't know, vote no, echoed that of the Amsterdam Treaty, end quote. Now, what Jane O'Mahony is pointing to there again is this sense that no matter what way you look at this, um, the political elites were pulling back in large part from the process. It was kind of like, it'll get through, it'll be all right. And, and, and you know what, it makes sense. And in a way, they wanted business groups and, you know, other lobby groups to do the campaigning for them. Why is it always down to the political parties almost? <clears throat> 
Um, and that wasn't going to happen here. Uh, in, in other words, the campaign kind of drifts along um, without that real leadership to it, without that sense of urgency or how important this was uh, to Ireland. So in the context of the, the, the referendum, you get a very dull campaign from the yes side. They're all looking politically to the general election and this isn't a priority. It's a grave mistake. The no campaign benefits from a couple of things. Um, first of all, nice, catchy slogans. If you don't know, vote no. It rhymes, it catchy. People love that. We can say what we like about it, but that's the kind of stuff that still matters to helping people remember or make a decision. We love rules of thumb. We love simple things. We love a message that will lodge in our memory. And a slogan like that really helps. If you don't know, vote no. Um, it makes sense to people. The kind of, I don't know what this means. I'm unsure what it means. And a real sense grabs hold that, look, there's no negative outcome to voting no. If you vote yes, you're going to change the way it's funded. You might have issues with abortion and divorce. You might have issues with um, Ireland's funding. You might have issues with our sovereignty. There are so many things you don't understand here, so many things you're about to change. That's what's going to happen if you vote yes. <clears throat> On the other hand, if you vote no, well, status quo just remains. Things don't change and no harm. Tell them to go back and think about it and be sure. And there becomes a sense that there is no real price to voting no. And for people who don't know, they either do stay away going, I haven't a clue. I don't know what the right thing is anymore. And on the other hand, people going, yeah, well, if I don't know, vote no and sure look it. They can think about it, they can go away on it and, and, and debate it, but we don't have to accept it. It also builds up a new kind of sense of don't obey the political masters, don't be sheep. And you really see this growing and it's a very strong part of political debate now. People are always being called sheep. Anybody who obeys any rule is a sheep. You know, that's just it. You know, you're a sheep for following this. Oh, you're a conformist. As if there's always some wonderful thing about not being a sheep. I don't know what sheep ever did to anybody to get this bad name, but, you know, they do what they do, sheep, and they actually produce very good results for farmers, and, and they're a very important part of our economy. So why do we degrade them so much? Who knows? In the end, though, that's something that's part of Irish politics and the European politics now. Everybody likes to say somehow rebelling against everything is always the positive and there is a sense in this some of the posters one from Ogre um, Sinn Féin in particular at the time which was uh, no we won't do what we're told and uh, pictures of Bertie Hearn and, and Mary Harney scowling and, and at them as I say you have to do what you're told and this kind of thing don't do what the political leaders want you're only giving in to them and there's a sense of we can kick them in a referendum and it doesn't really affect any of us in our daily lives so it's okay um and therefore, um, you get this rush to to the polls to kind of say, well, you know, look, we we don't need to. Well, I suppose when I say rush to the polls, a rush of those who voted to the polls to kind of say, well, we can give a bit of a kick here and there's no harm to it. And maybe it's a good thing if we did that. Um, and that does call into question the approach of the political parties who get a really nasty shock because the result as it happens turns out, uh, as I've mentioned to you, the turnout is incredibly low, 34.8%. Uh, That's less than 35% of the people. So it's by no means a, a, a really strong mandate either way that the referendum goes. 46% vote yes, 53.9% vote no. 
Um, so, you know, look, even the margin of victory, it's solid, but it's not convincing. Um, and that's the problem. That's the problem with a referendum like this. What does it mean when it actually kicks in uh, in this context? What does it mean for Ireland? Well, a couple of things happen fairly quickly. As I've pointed out, you get a sense within the government initially of people like Charlie McCreevy, Eamon McCreevy, they kind of welcome this and kind of talk about, well, you know, there's no harm. In one way, that could be seen as healthy, you know, that Ireland is saying, you know, there are problems here in the EU. And let's put that in context, because there were problems within the EU. There were issues within it. People were becoming unsure of where the EU is going. And it probably was a healthy development. It probably should have been taken more account of at EU level, because what was happening and what was given as a warning shot in this referendum in Ireland is something that eventually leads to Brexit. Now, I'm not sure how much the EU could have done or didn't do or what it need. It's a, such a complex problem to solve. But undoubtedly, people were unsure about the direction. And increasingly, this will be replicated across Europe where the public are at a distance from the European project to where the leaderships are. Now, that leads you to that kind of issue that you get where you get countries like Britain pulling out and referendums go. Not every EU country would today fancy putting a referendum on membership to their, 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 their country because even if they win it, they would know they'd seriously weaken um, their, their stance in Europe because they know there was lots of voices opposed to it and lots of voices opposed to these things for whatever reasons anyway. Um, but Europe doesn't particularly take and, and the need for reform and the need for changes to how Europe does business and the need for how it communicates itself and how it engages with the public, all of that does need to change. But they don't really take that warning shot They kind of get a little bit annoyed with Ireland. And Ireland will go back and, as we say in the next podcast, we'll, we'll cover the second uh, Nice referendum. But ultimately, um, for Ireland initially, it does point to something that probably was right, that we did need to have this discussion and debate. Ireland, do they have it? Does it happen? No, Ireland tends to rush on and say, listen, poor result, get the party machines out and let's get this result overturned, which they will do in time uh, and, and get a very convincing vote uh, in favour of, of, of the treaty in the next referendum. But that warning shot, probably don't hear it, that... that sense of, of the elites having their own doubts about it. These are discussions about the future of Europe that still have to happen um, that are still not entirely at ease with where Europe's going or its purpose or what the ultimate objective of Europe is. They've been around since its foundation and perhaps there isn't an answer to them. But in the absence of that, people are struggling. They're struggling to define exactly where their support starts or ends for the European project. Now, the result itself uh, in Ireland gives a huge um, shock to the system. Uh, Ireland is, as, as a political elite level, enormously embarrassed. You can imagine these guys are going, we were the good nation, we're the ones that are the shining example to these uh, accession countries coming in. And now we've actually just you know, told them, you, know, you, you, you can't come in, we're going to hold it up. That reaction is very tough for Ireland to take. The elite are very embarrassed. They're embarrassed because they haven't run a good referendum themselves and they know that. They're embarrassed because of what it says to the rest of Europe and they're embarrassed because the rest of Europe begins to look over at Ireland and go, you know what? Everything from the Eurovision Song Contest through to your 
wealth as a country from cohesion funds through to your great sport at the European Championships in football and all of those kinds of things. We all liked you. But you know what? You're not that likable when you scratch the surface and you're, you're, you're threatened at all. And that was a knee-jerk reaction because that wasn't really what the Irish people were saying in, in, in the referendum. But you can see how it was perceived as that. And it does damage Ireland enormously at this point in how it's perceived uh, across the countries. Because this kind of country that we all thought was great crack and loved everyone and sure was always there for the party and to welcome everybody in is not so welcoming when it comes to other countries wanting to get a share of the pie. Um, and as I say, that may not be what the Irish people were saying, but that's perception of it. That was always a risk. And what it does do, a real estate clearly, is that certainly when seen through the eyes of, of the elites and of leadership, it is not a case of if you don't know, vote no, and there's no consequence. There is a consequence to every decision. The consequence for Ireland is huge damage to where it stands as a, a favoured nation or a trusted nation among particularly the countries that are about to come into the EU. Um, and it really does damage its position. And it damages its position with the existing members who thought, well, look, we thought you were one we could rely on to solve problems. Actually, you know, you're an absolute headache now. Um, and at a crucial time when we will be heading into the financial crisis and all that, Ireland's stance is badly damaged in, in, in Europe as a result of it. Um, now, it will work hard and, you know, change that back, as we'll talk about in later podcasts, but it is. So it is not a decision that has no consequence. Ireland, in the meantime, goes back and then we will start saying, right, what do we do? And they know, they know that there isn't really an option here because Europe doesn't operate on this basis of, you know, um, opt in or opt out. This isn't like one of those treaties which were had the elements before. You could be in the EU as Britain was, but you weren't a member of the single currency. So the, you, you were in the EU, but you didn't have the, the euro. You could opt to that. That's fine. That works. There are elements that work. You know, across the continent of Europe, uh, there's absolute free travel within what's called the Schengen area, where they didn't have to check on their passports and all that kind of stuff. Ireland and Britain opt out of Schengen. They have their own little travel area between themselves, but, you know, we're not in the Schengen uh, area, so we don't have that complete free travel uh, that, that the others had. Um, we're better for being in the EU, yes, and it's easier, but we don't just have the Schengen Agreement. So there are elements of policies that can be opted out of at times, or you can say, well, we're in this part of Europe, but we're not in that. And those kind of things, they're, they're things you can... This one in Nice is not an opt-in, opt-out. You can't go, well, you know, we voted out of enlargement, so, you know, therefore we'll be in the non-enlarged part. That won't work. So what Ireland has done now is actually halted the European Union being able to, because every country has to pass this. And it's not kind of, again, a majority thing. And then this debate starts, could it be a majority thing? Could all the other countries go ahead without Ireland? What happens? Now, the Irish political elites will react by going, OK, calm down. Before you rush into decisions of can Ireland be left behind or can there be a two-track Europe or, you know, uh, God forbid, even rumours, maybe you kick Ireland out. Any of these kind of things, which, of course, couldn't happen. But, you know, all of those elements were uh, part and parcel of just this knee-jerk debate at the time. The Irish government's going to relax on this and say, listen, we've got elections coming up. 
let us do our elections and those elections will will see you know huge results particularly for in a fall party um and then it's a case of when we get that mandate and we get a bit of time let's pass it there are certain things that panicked people there's a lot of talk about abortion we know and the europe is looking at it going but abortion isn't in here and then we know but you know some people aren't going to read the whole treaty so we're going to need to talk to you on that we're going to need to talk to you about the neutrality thing that's and they're saying but you're looking we've not changed anything on the neutrality thing and they're saying yep we know but we're going to need to talk to you on that and they're going to start saying if we can get some kind of thing to bring back we can give people assurances on certain things we might be able to run this again. Meanwhile, the parties are quite confident. All they need is an excuse to rerun it because they're looking at the turnout. And if you're a political figure, you look at that turnout and you say, you know, look, at I can get that turnaround. If I get my, my, my people who stayed away, I can get them to turn up and actually vote and vote in favour. And that has to be an easier. They weren't agitated enough to vote against, so they just stayed away. Get them out, get them in favour of it. Yeah, we can, we can turn this round. So as a political organiser or canvasser or campaigner you would be confident that you can get this done but you just need an excuse to get it held again so that's where the government immediately starts looking and saying listen we can change things around here and we can get the result we need we don't need to hold up all of Europe we just need a really big effort in getting this over the line um, and I think the Irish people in the aftermath of Nice were a little bit shocked themselves because I think a lot of people had assumed yeah, it's going to be tight. Polls are showing it's tight and so on. But you know what? It'll it'll be there. It'll be fine on the day. And a lot of people didn't vote um, who were surprised then when they see, oh, it's it's over. And then they go, well, it's OK. No harm. Let Europe know. But the idea that that was going to be its final say on it or that we hear you couldn't enlarge as a result of it or that, they weren't kind of at all at ease with that. And that's what I mean. It was the idea that the Irish people didn't want enlargement would have been false even though that was the perception of the result, because I think Irish people, when they saw it and thought it might actually stop it, were kind of like, oh, well, that's not, we're not saying that, and we don't want to be perceived as that. <clears throat> but as a result, it was a huge shock for the Irish populace uh, and for the Irish elites and for government, but it shook things up politically, and after that, it was no harm, because it made them realise that politics was changing, and most of all, it's changing. It's changing between... The power dynamic, even though we're coming up to a big general election in 2002 where the established parties, uh, particularly Fianna Fáil, will do well, it's shifting between Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Labour. That power block is easing its control and it's getting more into disparate groups growing up who have very different views and it's not as easy to keep the populace on the same track as these big parties were in the past. That shift is making major issues and major referendums a lot more tricky. In the past, parties didn't fear referendums because you activated the machine, the machine kicked in and you got the result. Now, referendums were about to become a lot more tricky. People were not willing to trust the leaderships of their parties or the general public were not willing to trust politicians at all. And even though you got all of these parties coming together, it was kind of like, mm, don't need to trust them. People felt... They knew more than maybe these politicians did. And part of that, too, is down to a little bit of the degrading faith in politicians. Every politician's a bad guy. Every politician's up to something. Politicians are a bit stupid. Oh, our politicians are thick. And it happens all over Europe, indeed all over the world, where people do not 
like or respect pretty much politicians anymore. And that may be politicians' own fault, but it also leaves people completely unable to trust the politician who has probably spent a long time studying this and honestly is recommending you a course of action because they believe it, but you still don't trust them, even when they do it. And that is problematic for politics. That's where we leave Nice One because it was uh, a seminal moment in Irish politics where things shifted into a moment where you can no longer take results for granted and referendums become a lot trickier and the public becomes a lot more difficult to manage in terms of where it wants to go and how its views diverge from those of perhaps the political elite. And so that is that from this podcast. Thank you for listening in and thank you for uh, accompanying me on this little journey back to 2001 and the first Nice referendum. We will, of course, be coming back to the second Nice referendum and how that changed things. And of course, there are many twists and turns in the referendum story uh, on Europe uh, yet to come with the Lisbon treaties uh, and uh, the later uh, European treaties also to be examined. And of course, we have some big social ones coming up on abortion and on marriage equality and all of those referendums still to come in the next uh, uh, few episodes so do keep tuned to the referendum series as we cover it in the meantime i want to thank you for paying attention all the way through this and for bearing with me on it if you have any views or thoughts on anything you have heard or indeed if i have got anything wrong and that does happen from time to time unfortunately uh do let me know and you can contact me uh, on twitter at johnny fallon that's at j-o-n-n-y-f-a-l-l-o-n uh, and i would love to hear your thoughts or opinions on it if you like the podcast and if you like any of our previous episodes well maybe go back have a listen if you haven't heard any of our uh, previous ones on uh, our general election since 77 maybe give them a listen and some of our previous referendums as well love to have you on board and love to have your thoughts and contribute to the debate i want to thank my colleagues at car communications who have helped to make this uh, podcast possible and of course with their views uh thoughts uh their their help and uh, access of course to the car communications library as well that's it for this week uh so it just remains for me to thank you all for uh tuning in and to ask you yes please do pass it along give us a shout out on twitter if you can and if you enjoy it in the meantime we will see you shortly where we will return to the next round of referendums and the results and what they meant for ireland and the irish people till then stay safe take care Thank you.